And so with church politics, you know, you, you're, you find that what happens is it creates division between people. Uh, I can remember back to the days when I first came to church. Um, my brother and I and then my mother, we as a family, came to Christ relatively close together in time, and we started attending a small little Baptist church in Omaha, Nebraska. And um, the thing that really struck us when we first came to church was the love of the people. Uh, when we walked in the door, we were immediately greeted, accepted, uh, made to feel so welcome. Uh, it was really a pleasure to be there. What a contrast that church experience was with what we had experienced in just everyday life. Uh, there seemed to be no competition, no uh, need to try to present yourself as something that you weren't. Uh, people just accepted you as you were. Uh, we couldn't get over how when it came time to sing hymns, the people really sang them. Uh, they put their whole hearts into them. I was standing uh, close to the front of one side of the church when uh, for the first time I heard the song, It Is Well. If you're familiar with that old hymn, uh, you know what it sounds like when people believe the words that they are singing. You know, it is well, and the men just had that long, well, and it was so invigorating. I mean, for a second, I just kind of looked around me like, what is going on here? These people are, you know, the only experience I had up to that point was the two or three times that we had gone to uh, one of the big churches in Omaha, the magnificent First Presbyterian on Farnham Street, and the people, when they sang the hymns, they were just singing the hymns. It was about decorum. It was about appearances. You know, I don't mean to throw stones at any other church, but I'm just saying there was a decided difference between the hundreds of people at that church singing a hymn and maybe the 100 to 150 people at the church that we started attending then singing. And the difference was the fact that they believed what they were singing. They were excited about what they were singing. Whatever the words were, they sang it with just full gusto. They loved it. And so we fell in love with that church. But over time, like with all churches, we found that there could be division. Uh, this came out most uh, clearly during things called the uh, congregational meetings. Now in a Baptist church, uh, unlike maybe if you're used to just Parkview, where there's an elder rule church, the, in Baptist churches, it's a congregational rule church, which can be a good thing. But in that kind of format, that church government, every member of the church has the same uh, privilege standing and, 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 and authority as the next member. There isn't really a hierarchy. Uh, and on the surface, that sounds like a great thing. But unfortunately people would take their shots, right? Somebody would be upset about something and they would feel there was a need to say something about that during the church service. And that was distressing. I watched our pastor's face as in one particularly difficult meeting, uh, somebody had been upset because they felt like their children, who were adults, didn't get the full attention that they should have gotten from the church while they were going through a tough time. And so that person felt compelled to stand up during a meeting 
and say something about that. And I watched that pastor's face, and I could see how grieved he was. I knew him well. Uh, I knew that was not his intent for that to happen. But nevertheless, those are the kind of things that can happen. I've seen churches over the, or over the years fight over different things. Uh, there was a church back in my first town when I first got out of seminary um, that was a small church, and they were kind of governed by a very large family. Not the pastor, not the church leadership, but by this church family. And I watched pastor after pastor after pastor just kind of go through the revolving doors of that church because there was division, because there was church politics afoot. One of the pastors who I greatly enjoyed and got to know very well, um, after a while he just talked to me and said, I can't do this anymore. I can't be here. Uh, there's just, it's just too hard to get the people unified on one one idea on where we should be going and so forth. I even listen and try to adapt it myself, but I do not sense the presence of the Spirit here. So within a month, a new pastor was there. And I remember stopping by. I was the president of the Ministerial Association that year. And I thought, well, you know, this would be a good opportunity for me to just stop in and say hi and to greet the new pastor. And when I went in the door, uh, I didn't find anybody in the office. But I could hear voices upstairs. And I thought, well, he must be up there doing something. So I walked up to this upper story where the nursery was actually for this church. And there was this man that I had not met before and his wife. And they were busy painting the church. And I said, wow, you're painting this nursery. And he said, yep. I'm saying, he said, I felt like it really needed some help. And I said, well, that that's amazing because I know your predecessor had always wanted to paint this room because on the wall was a uh, very, I'm sure, honored mural that one of the church members had done of Noah's Ark with animals coming off and Noah standing there with his staff, you know, and looking very uh, Old Testament-ish. And I said, unfortunately, even though the paint was beginning to peel, the lion was missing his head, the elephant no longer had a tail, and so forth, just signs of kids having fun in the nursery and you know little dents in the walls and so forth uh, he had not been allowed to repaint this room and i said i'm just amazed that they let you do that this has been a, a source of contention in this church for quite a while doesn't that sound silly a nursery wall be a source of contention but it can be and the man said oh i didn't realize that i just started monday and I saw this, my wife and I went down to the hardware store and we bought a gallon of paint and we have just started painting. So me being me with my usual sarcasm, I was like, well, it's been good knowing you. I hope you enjoy your next position. And sure enough, uh, he was sent off to Bismarck, North Dakota within the month. So, you know, it's just, it's just silliness that can happen in those situations. And here's what usually I think happens is that we lose sight of what the church really is at times. And we're all guilty of this. I don't mean to sound like I'm standing here condemning other people. I have been guilty of this. We get so convinced and so affirmed in the way that the church should be, the way a program should be, the way the building should be, well, you name it. We can all get our favorite hobby horses, right? That we soon 
lose sight of what it is that Christ is doing in the church. See, the church isn't a building. We don't come to the North Campus Church or the Central Campus Church or to the East Campus Church. We come to the church, capital C. It is that institution which Christ created. And the truth is, when we come into the church, we are bringing the church with us into this building. You and I are the church. It's not stone, it's not wood, it's not paintings, it's not projects, it's people. And people are important. You see, everybody wants to believe and feel that they matter, that their opinion is valuable, that their efforts are worthwhile. And the church that functions in that way, that recognizes that each of us have a gift, some of us have several gifts, but that Christ gave us gifts as part of our sanctified living because of the result of the salvation that he offers us, then we see that there's value in each other. There's value in what we can contribute. That's hard sometimes to remember because we get so used to things. The older that we get, the more institutionalized we become in what we do and how we do it, the harder it is to stay supple, flexible, agile, and yet we have to. When you think of the church, when you read the New Testament and you say, well, let's just see what happened in those days of Pentecost in the book of Acts. Let's watch as the apostles established the church around the world. Those are the words that should leap out at us. Supple, flexible, agile. They came into a church, they spread the word of God, they converted people, the church was established, and the church flourished. And yet, the church looked different in almost every city that the apostles went to. The church at Corinth, the church at Berea, uh, the church in Rome, they all had unique flavors, unique uh, ways of doing things. That didn't make them right or wrong, that just meant that was who they were. That's the people that populated it. And yet they were focused on some unifying factors. And the primary factor they were unified on is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the head of the church. All the rest of us are just body members. I might be a pastor. I might have gifts that lend themselves to teaching, to preaching, and so forth. That's what pastors do. But that doesn't make me more valuable than someone else who has a different gift, right? So we have to leave those things that we bring from the world, from our prior life in Christ, we have to leave them at the door of this building. And we remember that each one of us, according as we had studied in the book of 1 Corinthians, was purchased with a great price. Jesus Christ died on that cross for each one of us. And when we come together, something marvelous can happen. As I mentioned earlier, I walked into the foyer of that church for the first time, and I was greeted by several people. Thank you for being here. It's so wonderful. Who are you? What are you about? Uh, there was no mention that I wasn't dressed appropriately for church. There was no mention that I didn't have a family history at that church. There was no mention of the fact that I knew nothing about the Word of God. 
they were ready to flex, to be supple, to adapt. And they brought me in there with them. Well, as Josh has mentioned, we are focused today on renewal. No longer, no long, doesn't matter how long you've been in this church. Doesn't matter how long Parkview as a church has been around. We want to focus on renewal at this time of the year. It's been undoubtedly one of the most, uh, shall we say, renewable years in Parkview's church history. All right? We saw Jeff Gilmore, our longtime pastor, retire. Nearly 30 years he stood at the pulpit at Parkview. We've seen the multiplication of campuses. We've seen the exit of Pastor Doug Schillinger. We've seen other pastors leave. You guys are going to see Pastor Josh here uh, take a new position here in a relatively short amount of time. And questions have to be in our minds. Where do we go from here? What are we supposed to be doing? How do we renew? And that is something that the leadership of Parkview has been focused on and working on and praying about quite a bit. And yet nobody has any intention of coming into any one of our campuses and saying, this is how you must renew. This is what you're going to be doing. Instead, we're inviting, we're focused on being supple, flexible, and saying, let's bring everyone together. Psalm 127. That's a long way of getting to this passage this morning. Psalm 127 it speaks exactly to what I'm talking about. Here we have a psalm of ascent. Uh, a psalm of ascent means this was a song that was sung by the people of God in the Old Testament when they would go to the annual festivals like Passover, right, or one of the feasts, and they had to go to Jerusalem. It was quite a hike depending on where you lived in the promised land. Uh, if you were coming from the north by the Sea of Galilee, if you were coming from the south by Idumea, it didn't matter. You were going uphill towards the city of Jerusalem, and as you did, your focus would have been at the pinnacle, the crowning pinnacle of that city, the temple, Solomon's temple. And as people walked that journey, and for some it was a multiple-day journey, they would get there, hoping that they would get there as the sun was setting, and there they would see the sun reflecting off the temple, the white alabaster walls, the gold inlay, the magnificent structure that Solomon had poured his life, that the Holy Spirit had infused into the artisans and craftsmen who came alongside of each other, and they made this magnificent building, and as they walked up, they sang this psalm. It's the eighth of 15 different psalms of ascent that were sung in those days. And their entire hope was that in the morning, they would be able to come to the temple after being rested from their journey, and they would get an opportunity to confess their sins like we have this morning. They would bring their animals to sacrifice to the priests, they would go through the entire process, and then they would join the rest of the congregants singing praises to God. And all this would happen in that temple square. They were so excited. So people were coming together. They would have been joyous. They would have been uh, just anticipating something great happening. And they would sing this song. It's also a wisdom song, right? 
It's a wisdom psalm, and it's one of the six within the fifth Psalter book of the book of Psalms, along with 112, 119, 127, 128, 133, and 145. And the thing that makes a wisdom psalm so important is that wisdom psalms are usually short, to the point, and they're focused on two main points. One, wisdom in faith, and secondly, wisdom in living. They would always deal with the faith aspect. What, what does it mean to please God? How can I live my life so that God can take it and do with it as he will? And then wisdom living. How does that apply in everyday life? How should I be changing my lifestyle to match what I say I believe? Well, let's take a look. This Psalm 127 fits perfectly into that setup and how it's supposed to be there. Psalm 127, as we had read before, says, unless the Lord builds this house. Now, I just want to bring your attention to something. I'm going to a different translation on here. Um, there's a word that is prominent in these first few verses. Uh, in the Hebrew, it is saweh, saweh. Um, and it's used and translated in the English as in vain. Um, now, when you think of the phrase in vain, how do you see that? I mean, it's not a typical phrase that we use as we communicate with one another on our weekly lives. I, I can't remember ever saying to my wife, uh, you're expecting me home for dinner at five? <laughs> well, that is in vain, wife. <laughs> That's not going to happen. No, a better word, and I, one I prefer, is useless. It's useless. Uh, there's no way, I own, that I can be home by five today. It is useless for you to have that expectation. And that's what is the psalmist is writing here uh, very strongly. Uh, unless the Lord builds the house, those who try to build it, it's useless, right? Useless is, are the efforts of those who try to build a house without the Lord being at the center of it. Useless is the efforts of those who watch over a city if the Lord himself is not watching the city. Useless is it for those of you who rise up early and go to bed late. Useless is it for you to worry and toil and so forth. Useless, useless, useless. Sawe, sawe, sawe. It is useless. The psalmist is trying to say the wisdom of faith in this statement is that God has to be at the center of what we're doing. And that seems like a simple statement, right? I mean, what else would he be saying? However, is maybe you're like me, you find that too often you get to the point where you are doing what you think is the Lord's work, trying to do it in the manner that he ascribed, but in fact, what we're doing is things in our own labor. We're doing things in our own will. We hoped that we were doing things right, but the fact is we didn't really invite God into the process. We haven't really followed what he showed us already that we should be doing. Useless is the person that seeks to raise a family without the Lord in the middle of it. Useless is the person that seeks to be participating in a church where the Lord isn't at the focus of it. Useless are the efforts of those who seek to spread the gospel anywhere, but let's just say for today's purposes, here in Iowa City. 
unless the Lord is at the center of it. Useless, useless, useless. And the psalmist is writing this. Remember, people are marching to Jerusalem. They're looking at the temple off in the distance on the horizon. So probably, as he's talking, he says, unless the Lord builds the house, the house that he's referencing here is probably the Lord's house, right? It's probably the temple itself. Now, it's okay if you are like most of us and you read this for the first time and you interpret that word house uh, in the Hebrew, bayit, as your house, my house. Uh, it's the place where my immediate family lives. Uh, I live on this particular street. The Lord has blessed my house. Uh, I'm not exactly in the process of building a new house, as it says in verse 1, but you get the idea that this is imagery that the psalmist is saying the house is being built. It's more than brick and mortar. In the case of the temple, it's more than gold and pomegranate and bronze and so forth. This is the efforts at building something special, something divine, something spiritual. He builds the bayi, the house. Now, when I look through the Old Testament, that word that we have translated house here can be used in many different senses. There's the personal house, yes, that's true, but also it can refer to uh, a large house, um, a communal house. It can also refer to a community, uh, a city. It can also refer to a nation. And it's almost used equally in all of those different senses. So when we come to this psalm, we have to ask ourselves in what sense is house being used here. And as I said before, since this is ascribed as a psalm of ascent for Solomon, we probably are looking at that temple. Now, unless the Lord builds the temple, which I'm just going to take the hermeneutical leap and say, we can push that over to the church. We could say, unless the Lord builds the church, useless are the efforts of the person who does that. And then when he says well, he's watching over the city, the city is undoubtedly Jerusalem in the psalmist's minds here. But for us, we're going to take this as a different kind of city. We're going to say watching over the community of God's people. We could say Iowa City, but probably a little more exacting as to what the psalmist is intending here would be all churches within our city. Because in the Old Testament, of course, it's a theophany. Jesus, uh, God himself, is the head of this nation. When the people of Israel are marching to Jerusalem, they're coming to the capital city, but it's a city that exists under the direction and leadership of God. Uh, they have that unique privilege of knowing that their whole existence is predicated upon the fact that God created a covenant with Abraham and then with successive people in that family line and eventually they got to the place where they had a nation and the entire nation was supposed to be God-fearing, Jehovah-worshipping. Uh, we don't have that privilege today. That's one of the problems when we get to the Psalms and we try to make a direct application from something that is said so clearly in the book of Psalms and how do we apply that this side of the cross? in the New Testament, in the New Testament era. And I think we're safe in saying 
that even though we don't live in a holy city, we do have holy people. Even though that God's focus and uh, presence was at one time in the temple, in the holy of holies, even though he is uh, omnipresent, he's everywhere at once, he did choose for the sake of Israel to be available in that one place, this side of the cross, where's his availability? Where does his loci, where does he sit? Well, we know from the New Testament that he indwells right here, right? In your heart and in my heart, he is here. That's why I've said earlier, it's not this building, but you are the church. Wherever you go, the church goes. Whatever you do, the church does. When we gather together, it is an amazing thing. The, the New Testament encourages us to get together on a regular basis. We do many things when we're corporately involved with one another. We pray, we confess sin, we watch as the Holy Spirit does his jobs and he anoints different people for ministry. We commission missionaries, we serve at the Lord's table, we participate in taking communion, we watch baptisms, there's many things that we do as a group. This is the church. This is the house of God in that sense when we are together for his purposes. So useless is the person who seeks to establish a church, who seeks to build up the church unless the Lord is at the center of it. How can God not be at the center of a church? You just got done saying, Dave, that God lives in me. So how in the world can that happen that there are divisions, that there are such a thing as church politics? It happens because we are still capable of getting our eyes off the head of our church and putting them on someone else or even looking into a mirror and mistakenly thinking that I am the head of the church, that I am more important, that I know something better than someone else knows. The fact is, is that we come together and we value one another. We see the Holy Spirit working in that family, in this family, in this family. And our hope and our prayer for those who aren't necessarily growing in Christ is that they soon will be, because we've all been there. There's no room for judgment. The Lord is at the center of it. Unless the Lord watches over the churches in this city, useless is it to stay awake and watching them. We can do all the vigilance we want. We can do all the teaching we want. We can do all the prayers that we want. But we have to recognize that Jesus Christ himself, this side of the cross, is the focus of every church. He is the only head. It is in him that we live and breathe. Can there be division? Can there be difference of opinions in such a church? No, certainly. Uh, we see Paul and Barnabas decide differently on how they were going to deal with a young believer in their midst. And they decided to go their separate ways. Was that sin? No, not necessarily so. But there cannot be anger. There cannot be a judgment that someone is worthless or some position has no merit in the sense of, what does Jesus say? We have to understand that we're first and foremost, we submit everything that we are and believe and do to his care. He is at the center of everything that goes on. Josh was talking about renewing. If in your heart you heard him say that, 
the leadership of Parkview has decided that this will be a season of renewal. What was the first response in your heart? If it was, yes, this would be great. I can't wait to take my place as a believer in Jesus Christ and as a member of Parkview Church in renewing his church. But if you find, like I have found in my own heart at times, you're saying, oh, no, this, this is just finally the way that I like it. Things are going beautifully. I don't want any part in it. And you find resistance coming up. You know that it's not of God. It just isn't. God wants us to constantly be renewing. Even if things were going the best that they could be going, if things were just perfect, we need to renew. I often think back to the days when I first came to Parkview, and we had close to 2,000 people, and things were just seemingly chugging along. Jesse Bradley had you know, hundreds of kids coming to the college ministry, and we had all these amazing things happening. It's at those times, more than any others, really, that we need renewal, isn't it? Because it's too easy to get satisfied, self-satisfied in who we are and what we're doing. We should be in a process of renewal constantly. We should always be asking Jesus, what should I be doing? How are we not exactly fulfilling the mission that you have for us? What can I do better than I did yesterday? One of my prayers every morning when I wake up is, God, I don't want to be the same Dave Foster today that I was yesterday. Because the Holy Spirit convicts me so often of bad attitudes, wrong attention on things, waste of time. I could be doing such a better job. And my prayer is, renew me, Christ. Help me to get rid of the old man. Help me to be something that I haven't been so far. And I've been walking with God for quite a while now. I'm a pastor. Which of us can say, and we think about our own condition, I don't need renewal. I am everything that God wanted me to be. I am that person. Well, that's the time that we should tremble because there's only one person, there's only one entity that has that ability, and that's Jesus himself. The rest of us are trying to become more like Christ. Iona and I were talking on this. We were driving up the interstate to here this morning, and all I could think of was the fact that I need to be renewed. I need to become more like Christ. My focus needs to be on him, always. The second couplet of this psalm, starting in verse 3, he seems to shift focus. It's almost like the first couplet and the second couplet don't even go together. Uh, but that's not true. He says, behold, children. Children? What do they have to do with focusing on the temple and the city of Jerusalem? Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man uh, who fills his quiver with them. What? What do children have to do with anything? With renewal. Well, of course, in fact, the psalmist is saying that children are our source of renewal. <laughs> the hope of Israel in this day was that they would pass on their faith, their beliefs to that next generation, right? The nation was only as strong as those young ones. If we weren't investing 
into the kids, then Israel would cease to exist. And boy, if you remember your biblical stories, how often did that seem to be really quite a possibility? That Israel as a people had forgotten their faith, forgotten their Jehovah God, and they had not passed on the righteousness and teaching about God to that next generation. But God in his mercy and in his grace renewed them again and got the focus of that next generation on him. And the cool thing about this is that the word for children here, banyin, rhymes with the word for house, bayit, and the word for build, banya, and you can kind of hear this lilting melody of this song as they marched up to Jerusalem. They're not only singing about God, it's useless to try to build a temple, to try to maintain our identity as a nation of Israel, to be obedient to you. It's useless to put all this effort into pleasing you unless you're at the core of it, unless we're focused on you. And then it just continues on and says, and it's useless to try to raise that next generation in the knowledge of your word unless you're at the focus of it. And it's just rhymes in the Hebrew. It, it, it sings, literally sings off the pages as you read it. Children are the heritage from the Lord. They're the inheritance of what we're doing. That word heritage can be used in many different ways, but they are the inheritance of a faithful people. It's not just any children, by the way, that we're looking at. He says, behold, visually comprehend from your heart that these little ones, they are a reflection of your faith, of my faith. Our children, our grandchildren, unto the third and fourth generation should be reflecting the faith of their forefathers, of us. We're not just building a church and churches. We're not just focused on the things of God with him at the center to establish something like a church. We're focused on it because the most obvious ongoing effort that we have is that next generation, right? Is the children who are the heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. This is a wisdom saying, right? He switches over now to sort of a militaristic metaphor, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. I love that word warrior. If you were here last week for Isaiah chapter 9, you heard us talk about, well, I guess it was two weeks ago, in verses 6 and 7, when the child is born, right? A son is given, and he shall be wonderful counselor. What? Mighty God. El Gabor. That's what it says in Hebrew. El God, Gabor. Mighty one, hero, uh, strong man, anything like that. And it says here in Psalm 127, part of the second part of the wisdom psalm is wisdom in living, that the man who has children, who has God at the center, is a Gabor. He is a mighty man. He is a warrior. Are you the hero of your family? If you're a man sitting here today, are you the warrior that goes to battle for your kids? Are you fighting not just for their rights, but are you fighting for them to have an understanding, an accurate and truthful and faith-filled understanding of the Lord their God? Do they know that your house stands or falls upon your faith? That's what he's saying, right? Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are your children. And if your quiver is full of them, how blessed are you? Another word for blessed there is the word content, 
right? It's another way of understanding that word. It's a wisdom word. It's used often in wisdom psalms. Blessed is the man. Content is the man who fills his quiver with him. He can't be put to shame, not even in the city gates. And if you remember the stories of the city gate, you know, often uh, in the book of Ruth, it's mentioned that Boaz goes down and he fights for the fact that he could be the kinsman redeemer of Ruth, but he has to do so before the elders at the city gate. In the book of Deuteronomy, it mentions the fact that the recalcitrant son, the disobedient one, is brought, even though he has resisted all of his parents' discipline, before the elders at the city gate. And there, those elders will determine whether this child will be punished further, whether he may even be put to death. They have that authority. It's an important place. We don't have such a place today. It would be kind of like saying, before the city council of North Liberty or Iowa City, I have no need to be ashamed because my kids carry on my faith. They bear the imprint of my belief in Jesus Christ. That is the goal. It's an amazing thing. The wisdom of faith, believing that the Lord is at the center of it all, and the wisdom of living, that I'm passing on what I believe to my children. Now, just like we did with house and city, I'm going to argue this morning that children are not merely just our naturally born children. We have opportunities to pass that faith on to children in many different avenues. Um, you may find yourself here this morning and either you never had children or your children are all grown up and gone. Your job isn't over. And in some cases, it hasn't even begun. This church, you know, the other day, um, maybe you were the recipient of one of these, but the children's ministry at Parkview sent out little Christmas postcards. And uh, Casey at the Central Campus gave me a big wad of postcards, and they were all addressed to people at North Campus. And as we went through that, my wife and I looked up with CCB in the computer, and we noticed, because all it said on the, on the letter itself was just the name of the couple. But we noticed how many kids are at this church. Wow. That is exciting. What absolute wonderful privilege, opportunity, say whatever word you want in there, does this church have to make a significant impact on the grade schools, middle schools, high schools, home schools, whatever you're using in this city, and for generations to come? Take that responsibility seriously, and I, I think you do. But wow, what a privilege. Psalmist is saying, wise living is passing that on. Find a place. Get involved. Don't think about, oh, well, I've done my job. Uh, I've, I'm going to rest now. I, I'm at that place myself. I've raised my kids. Uh, my house this last week was full of grandkids running around. One of the nice things about being a grandparent is that when there's a stinky diaper, when somebody's fighting with someone else, when something you hear crash and breaks, you just pray that it wasn't something you really care about. But you don't, it's not your job to go figure that out, You're right? You know, I remember as a parent, I used to do the three-second count. If I heard something crash, one, two, and depending on where I could get to before I heard the scream, I knew how bad the situation was, right? I don't have to do that anymore. Now I just go, Rachel! 
Hannah, your kids, uh, that's their job. You know, we just get to hug them and love them and teach them. You know, what a great, great thing. Get into that nursery. Get into that child care. Do whatever you have to do at North Campus for other people's kids. I came to church as a high schooler when I first came. Nobody knew us. I didn't have a dad. No one had taught us about the things of God. And yet, godly men and women took my brother and I under their wings and they infused into us their faith. We didn't deserve it. I'm sure there were times they were completely frustrated with us because my behavior did not match my faith at all. I think sometimes they thought, well, Dave's a pastor? Church is really hard up. How is that possible? There are people out there in our children's area that are going to be future leaders of Christ's church. They may not look like it. They may not seem like it, but they're there. Man, behold, the, the children are a heritage, are our inheritance from God. And you think, well, that's not much of an inheritance. I don't really like serving back there. Well, that's where it is. That's where it's at. And you go, well, Dave, you, we know you love children. You've been the children's pastor forever. Well, the reason I chose to go into children is because I believe this passage. And as I've grown, I've seen the fruition of that kind of effort, and it's amazing. It doesn't always stay this way. I'm going to end today just by looking at another passage, uh, kind of a jump in history from the Ascent Psalm that we were just looking at to what actually happened to this people of God. Lamentations chapter 1. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet is writing this years, hundreds of years after this ascent psalm was written. And if the people of God once were doing their singing on their way to Jerusalem, staring at the temple, hoping to see the presence of God, the generations that follow, because I'm sure the inheritance of their children was not taken seriously, they began to leave God. They began to go the wrong direction. They began to desert the faith of their parents, or perhaps, and this is even more frightening, they began to imitate the faith of their parents because the nation of Israel leaves Jehovah God. And what was the result? Lamentations 1 is just such a dire uh, description. I, I get sad to read it, but I will read it this morning. Verse 1, how lonely sits the city, Jerusalem, that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Drop down to verse 3. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. And here we go. The roads to Zion mourn. There's no singing ascent psalms. There's no understanding of wisdom in faith, wisdom in living. For none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers 
bitterly. This is the result of church politics. This is the result of division. This is the result of forgetting who is the head of the church. It's Jesus Christ. And if you think this is just kept for the Old Testament, that somehow this description of Jerusalem is something that happened historically, and what does that have to do with us, Dave? Take that jump to today. You know how many churches are closing in this country? It's amazing. 70% of the churches in Great Britain and Western Europe have already closed. And we seem to be following that same trend, right? A lot of times people are using terms like nuns and duns. The nuns are people who never have been affiliated with church. 36% of the people, the young people in Iowa City, have no affiliation with any known church, right? It's not even that they're weak church members, people who are causing division. I mean, we'd almost welcome them in the door, even if that was what it meant. But they're not here. They're finding other things to focus their attention on. And then there are the duns, those who grew up in the church, maybe went to Awana, maybe did a lot of different things, but they're not here anymore. They've had enough. They can't stand the church drama. It's too much. And they felt like, I can't handle all the things that go on day by day by day. And they, so they have decided. And by the way, I'll just say this. I know a handful of pastors had to have become duns. They can't take it anymore. They, they can't handle the strife, the division, the conflict. Can I encourage us today? As we look at 2021, as we think about what Pastor Josh has shared with us uh, is the purpose of the church this year to be renewed, that all of us, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter how much history we have with Christ, with his church, that we have committed ourselves to daily renewing. When the offer for prayer every day of January comes out there, don't just let that roll off your back. Don't take it for granted that this church will always be here. Pray. Make God the center. Useless is the church that doesn't do that. Pursue him. And I don't know any other way to pursue God than through prayer and reading of his word. And you as dads, make this your year that you're going to focus on your families, that you're going to see your children and the children of other homes as your inheritance, right? You're going to be a gabor, a mighty man for the faith. And no matter where you find yourself, you are going to be that person, right? When I went to Grace University, after I felt the Lord's calling in my life to go into ministry, uh, the first class I had was Survey of the Old Testament, right? I didn't know what I was getting into. I knew very little of the Word of God. But I remember the professor, Harold Berry, got up there and said, I'm going to teach this class as if you know nothing about the Old Testament. Man, those are the best words I ever heard, right? I didn't know anything about anything. And I learned. I started learning. All, let's all of us be on that same page in 2021. No matter where you find yourself today, there's more to learn. There's more to come together on. There's more desire for unity. We need one another, right? We are the church. Let's start shining with a capital C to the city of Iowa City, North Liberty, 
Coralville, all the cities in this area, let us wear our faith like we should be so that people will want to be part of what we have. They'll be amazed at how we sing our songs and the greeting they get at the door and that there are those willing to take their kids and impart their faith to them. Let's live like that.